0: I want us to read John eleven 45. We're going to read the end of the chapter, and then we will also read a few verses in chapter 12. Uh, we're just coming off of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This is kind of the pinnacle. Of Jesus's ministry in terms of miracles that he's done on behalf of people and we're going to see what happens and this morning I want to read this and really see this from the context of commitment and I think right in the middle of this passage uh, you'll see what I'm talking about so John 11 verse number 45 let's read what happens then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. So that seems like a pretty natural response. I just saw him raise a guy from the dead. I'm putting my faith in him. That's not normal. But then verse 46, some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. So there's another group that they run. They're kind of the tattletales. They run and tell the religious leaders, here's what Jesus did. FYI, you need to be aware of this verse 47 here's the response of these pharisees and these chief priests and the high priest and what happens then gathered together the chief priests and the pharisees a council And said, what do we for this man doeth many miracles? So they gather together. What you find is this is more than likely the Sanhedrin. Uh, These are 70 prominent men who rule over the affairs of Jerusalem politically and religiously. The Sanhedrin is led by the high priest. We'll see him in a minute. His name is Caiaphas. Then there are chief priests. Those are kind of the immediate family of the high priests who are also priests. Then there's Pharisees and then there's a few others. And they get together to say... What are we going to do with this guy? We've tried to excommunicate him. We've tried to arrest him. We have tried to shut him up. We have tried to shut him down. But we just can't get a hold of this guy. What are we going to do? So verse 48, they say, If we let him this alone, all men will believe on him. The Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. So they say if we let him alone, everybody's going to start following him. He's going to lead a revolt. Right now they're under Roman rule, and Rome rules with an iron fist. So he's going to lead some sort of uprising or revolt, and we think that Rome's just going to come. They're going to squash us all if we don't stop this guy. So verse number 49. One of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. How, <laughs> how lovely of him, right? Condescending a bit. Uh, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. This he spake not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas stands up and says, look, it's better for him to die than for all of us to die. And John says he doesn't even really know what he was saying. As high priest, he was used of God and he prophesied when he said that one man should die instead of the nation. He didn't realize that he was saying that Jesus was going to die on behalf of the people and that he was going to take the sins of the nation, but that's really what he was saying. Verse number 53, Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. So they've had these moments where they wanted to kill him, but never this organized, strategized plan. But now they're going to strategize it. They're going to kill him. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. So that's about twelve miles from Jerusalem. Uh, whether Jesus just knew this or he caught wind of this, he knows they're after him, so he gets a bit of distance between himself and the religious leaders. The Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. I'll stop there for just a moment. Verse 55, we know that Jesus' earthly ministry was roughly three years because John mentions three different Passovers. So it'd be like me saying, I've been pastoring here for three Christmases or something like that. You know it's roughly three years. And so he mentions three different Passovers. Jesus' ministry honestly would have been a little bit less than three years. Uh, but we know that from kind of these markers like this one here in verse 55, And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So very normal. A week before Passover, you go up, you go through the purification rituals before you enter into the holiday, but Jesus does not. It says they sought for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, what think ye that he will not come to this feast? So they're speculating, is he going to come or not come? You think he ain't going to show his face or not? There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of heat on him. Do you think we're going to see him? Will there be a Jesus sighting? Verse 57, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. So now there's this official warrant out for Jesus's arrest. Verse 12 or chapter 12, then Jesus six days before Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of them that sat at table with him. So very typical of this family. If you know the family, there's three siblings, Mary, Lazarus, and Martha. Uh, Martha is the one that's constantly going. She's the energizer bunny. She's constantly serving. She's constantly working. She's the one that has, like, lists for her list. As soon as she gets to the end of her list, the last thing on her list is make a new list. So she makes another one. She just keeps doing it and doing it. How many Marthas are in the room? You got any Marthas? Okay. Uh, Lazarus... Best I know, Lazarus never says a word in all of the Bible. You find it it says that he's just reclining with Jesus. He's like, it's been a long week, people. I was dead. I got raised from the dead. So I'm just going to chill out a little bit, just spend some quality time with Jesus, be here. Uh, and that's kind of his MO. He doesn't say a lot necessarily. Then you find Mary in verse number three, who the story centers on. Mary took a pound of ointment and nerd, very costly, Anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then Jesus said, let her alone. Against the day of my bearing has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much of the people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. What's happening in this story is you have kind of this bookended here are these people that are really miffed at Jesus. Everyone's going to follow him. we got to put a stop to him. Let's kill him. Then you have towards the end of this here, uh, Lazarus is also a cause that's causing people to come to Jesus. So we need to put a stop to that and let's kill Lazarus. And sandwiched right in between these two death sentences, more or less, for Jesus and Lazarus is the story of Mary being what I would call committed to or going all in with Jesus. Uh, right now is, is football season. We're kind of right in the middle of football season. And, uh, one of the most famous plays in football is the play action pass. It's the uh, idea of running a play to get the linebackers committed to the run so that they're vulnerable to the pass. If you don't know anything about football, I'll explain it very briefly. I'll I'll give you just an elemental lesson in football. There's the offense that wants to score, right? There's the defense that wants to stop them. And the defense is basically three basic rows. You didn't know you get a football lesson this morning, but here it is. There's three basic rows. There's the front row, which is the linemen they're paid a lot of money just to not get knocked over. So they're real big, and they just have to stand their ground and try to make sure they don't run the football through them. Then in the back, the third line is the secondary. They fan out, and they make sure that the quarterback doesn't pass the ball and that no one catches the ball. But in the middle of those two rows are the linebackers. And the linebackers have a tough job. They have to sometimes move forward and stop the run if a run's happening. And if a pass is happening they move back and they fan out and they try to defend the pass. The play-action pass is a fake of the run. You act like you're handing it to the running back so that the linebackers commit to the run they move forward they, they start to commit to the run therefore you can fake the pass then you can you can fake the run excuse me you can drop back and you can pass it and the idea of putting your weight or taking a step forward or moving towards something is the idea of commitment when a linebacker does this he's extremely vulnerable to the pass if he commits to the run which is the idea of the play and likewise when you decide that you're going to commit to anything including Jesus It's this idea of, I am going to open up myself to some vulnerability, I am going to put all of my weight into something, I am going to move towards something, I'm going to commit to something. What you find in this passage is despite all of the tension and all of the danger and all of the hostility that is being leveled at Jesus and at Lazarus, despite this being so, so intense, Mary has this moment where she wants to move completely forward and put all of her weight and all of her commitment into Jesus by anointing him with this, with this ointment. You find that there's kind of different layers of commitment here exhibited in verse number three of chapter 12. The first commitment that you'll see is just very simply a financial commitment. Mary, we're told, takes a pound, it's not a pound 16 ounces, kind of in uh, it's the Latin litra, which means liter, which actually means 12 ounces. But she takes this pretty good amount of ointment that is very costly. We're told that it's spikenard, which means that it comes from the nard plant from India. Uh, They would take from the root and even the spike of the nard plant, which is why they call it spikenard. They would extract this oil, and it was very, very costly, as the text says. And Mary decides that she wants to put this on Jesus. Now, I don't think anyone was surprised at first. We're told that they're hosting a supper, a banquet, a big celebration for Jesus. After all, he just raised Lazarus from the dead, so let's celebrate and have some fun here. Let's get a pinata and a cake or whatever it is. So it was very customary in this day and age as you came into a banquet, you came into a feast for the host or hostess to anoint you with some sort of fragrance or some sort of ointment. Why? Well, you're living in a day and age that is pre-refrigeration pre-running water, pre-showers, pre-deodorant, pre-toothpaste, pre-toothbrush. You get the picture, right? The reason why is because they stink. And from everything I can tell, it, it wasn't that they got used to the stench, that they walked around in a very hot and a very arid climate, and they thought they stink, we think they stunk, like that they, they, everyone knew that they smelled bad. And you didn't want to go into the feast or into this big occasion smelling B.O. all the time. I mean, it's just the way it was. So you would take something very strong, something very good smelling, and you would typically dab a little bit on the head or maybe even on the forehead. Why? So that now you are encased in fragrance, Now there's a protective shield around you, as it were, just like when you put on your perfume or your aftershave, that what do you smell then? All you smell now is this fragrance that you just put on yourself. So it was very normal to take a very small amount to apply it to your guests for them to be enveloped in this so that they didn't have to sit there and smell the stench all the time. But what is shocking is not that Mary anoints Jesus. What's shocking is the level to which she anoints Jesus. We're told that she pours this out. We also see this account in Matthew and Mark. They both recount the same story. Mark tells us that there was an alabaster box and Mary broke it. And when you think box, it probably wasn't a rectangle. It probably had some sort of neck on it, maybe almost like, you know, Aladdin's genie lamp or something, that there was some sort of neck that she broke and she was not intending to drip, drip it. She was intending to pour this. And we're told that when she does this, the smell fills the house. It overrides all of the other smells. It overrides what they're cooking. It envelops everything. And we're told that Judas responds with, more or less, where is your sense of proportion? Why in the world would you do this? You should, I mean, I I bet you should have just like sold it and given it to the poor. But we're told in Mark that it wasn't just Judas who was indignant. We're told in Mark chapter 14 verse 4 that there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of ointment made? We're told in the next verse of Mark that they murmured among themselves that more or less anyone who was present and saw or smelt what Mary did was irate. Anyone who had any sense of logic or common sense saw what she had just done, that she would take all of this and she would pour all of this out and give it to Jesus, that this is crazy, this is outlandish, let's talk about her, now it's not a celebration, now we're just gossiping about Mary, now we're filled with indignation, now we're spouting out at her, now we're mad because she just did this. Why? Because this was extremely expensive. This wasn't dollar store stuff. This was, we're told in the text, 300 pence. A pence was a day's wage. Uh, Some translations will translate it as a year's wage because it's roughly a year's wage. Now, that's expensive. You tell me, you probably don't have a singular item sitting around your house that is worth a year's wage, whatever your year's wage is. Maybe you have a Mickey Mantle rookie card sitting somewhere, but you probably don't. You probably don't have an item that is sitting in your house that is worth 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 thousand dollars. But this is. And this is, we're told by Mark, in an alabaster box. Very likely it was an heirloom. To put it in an alabaster box, very likely this was something that was passed down from generation to generation to generation. And very likely, this was more or less the family's financial security. The only way that this is not the family's nest egg is if they're just like crazy rich. Now they may have been, but it would have been very abnormal to be that. And, and it's very likely that this is the security of the family. This is their version of their bar of gold or whatever it is to secure them against the disaster, to secure them against the tyrant, to secure them against the famine. That they know that they are financially secure because we have this nest egg, this year's worth of wages contained in our alabaster box with this spike nerd. This this is our financial security in some total. Now I don't know if John or Mark or Matthew were gracious not to tell us what Martha thought, not to tell us what Lazarus thought, but if you can imagine being in that room and smelling, what I know that smell, why is that so strong and realizing what Mary has just done? That those who saw it, according to the gospel writers, said that they, they're indignant. They, they are angry about this because she pours it all out. Now, the lesson to be learned is that Mary is very clearly following Jesus, committed to Jesus, in love with Jesus, but is not conditioned by cost. There is is no sense in her mind of Jesus... I will follow you as long as it doesn't cost me too much. Or Jesus, I will follow you as long as it's profitable for me. Jesus, I will follow you as long as you don't ask too much of me. There's no doubt that she is willing to give whatever Jesus wants. That all of her possessions are on the line. This isn't tithing. This is way above and beyond 10%. This is her saying, "I, "I." there's nothing too big. There's nothing too much. I will commit everything to you no matter the cost. And I think the question that stares us in the face is very simply, are your or my giving habits anything like this? And by that, I don't mean that you should liquidate everything you have today and that you should give it away. I don't necessarily mean that, although you should be willing to do that. I mean, do you move through life open-handed? Do you move through life with a generous spirit? Do you go day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, into missions conference, out-of-missions conference with a heart to want to be generous, with a heart to want to give, with a heart to want to bless, with a heart to be open-handed, or do you move through that with a heart of, i got to hold on to this as much as I can. This is my security. My hope is, is inside of this, and I have migrated my hope away from God into my money, and this is what makes me feel confident. This is what makes me feel good. I, I, are you there? Because if you're not careful, you can find yourself in a spot to where you're just unwilling to give. And it's tough to imagine a world where giving is not a part of our rhythm, right? We don't really want to imagine a world where we celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and holidays and Christmas and, and, and graduations, but we don't give. There's something in us that wants to give, that wants to be generous, and if you're not careful... What you have to steward and to use as a tool and to be generous with can still your affection and can steal your heart. And it can put its hooks inside of you and all of a sudden you're not stewarding and you're not using it as a tool. It's something that has a hold of you. But Mary is a very, very clear example of someone who is not tight-fisted. She's not afraid to be lavish in what she gives. She's, she's not afraid to be generous. I dare say this. I dare say that if... If you look at your giving habits and how generous you are to the Lord, to his church, to other people, if you look at that, it will be a very clear indicator of your overall spiritual health. It is a great litmus test to look and see. Now, that's not the only test that you can have, but that is one of the tests that you can give yourself to see what what is that like. I had someone tell me, "Uh, Pastor, I don't get tithing. It seems like it's God's never-ending fundraiser. That, that was their, you know, thought. God is just constantly trying to raise funds. And I told them that Tithing is not God's fundraiser. Tithing is God's way of growing people. Tithe, God doesn't need your money. God doesn't, you know, he owns everything. He can He can get a, a coin out of a fish's mouth if he wants. He did that in the gospel, okay? He, he's fine. But it is his way of giving you a way and a test to know, do you trust him or not? Do you, do you move forward towards him? Do you lean into him? Can you put your weight there? Can you commit to him or not? It's, it's a key indicator of that. And when it comes to giving, Mary stopped at nothing. Now, I've known people that do that in the negative sense, that they stop at nothing literally. But there's nothing too big. There's nothing that she won't give. And she commits and says, you know what? I'm going to financially commit to Jesus. But beyond that, beyond that, there is this volitional commitment. There's a commitment of her will. There's a commitment of not just what she has, but what she will do. And you see that because she washes Jesus' feet. She pours this out, likely all over Jesus' head and forehead and all over the place, but she also pours it out on his feet. Now, in this culture, dealing with feet or washing someone's feet was extremely demeaning. The cultural moray was not to ask or put that on anybody. There was a lot of debate amongst the rabbis on could you even have your servant wash your feet? it, It was that low. There's a story of a rabbi going to court with his mother because the mother wanted to wash his feet and he refused to let her wash his feet. And she said, this would be an honor. I want to serve you, my son. And he more or less said, you can birth me. You can change you know, my diapers. He didn't say diapers, but you can change my diapers. You can feed me. You can take care of me, but you're not washing my feet. Like, you did all that, but that's just too low. And Mary comes to Jesus. By the way, this is why the disciples will be aghast when Jesus washes their feet. But Mary comes to Jesus, initiates this, and says, more or less, there is nothing that I will not do. There's nothing I won't give, yeah, but there's nothing I won't do. That I will surrender my will. I'm not conditioned by control. There's nothing too low. There's, there's nothing too big. There's nothing that I wouldn't do. There's, there's nothing you can't ask of me, Jesus. I'm willing to serve in any way, including washing your feet. And if you could wash someone's feet, you'd do anything for them. She's, she surrenders in such a way that she puts her will on the line. Now John portrays this as just Mary versus Judas. Judas. John's not inaccurate because Judas did say this, uh, but Matthew and Mark tell us that there were more conversation than just Judas. But John portrays this as Mary and Judas, that Mary does this, Judas says, what are you doing? I mean, sell it and give it to the poor. Of course, he has his own ulterior motives for this, but why does John portray this? Because there's basically this picture of, are you selling Jesus or are you sold out to Jesus, right? There's this picture in contrast between the two of are you using Jesus or are you, are you being used by Jesus? Are you, are you in this for yourself, for your own angle, with, with your own agenda, or are you willing to surrender all of that, not just what you have, but what you will do and put it on the table and say, Jesus, all that I have is yours. What you're seeing here, honestly, is a picture of holiness. Now, most of you would think holiness, commitment, that those are disconnected because we generally think of holiness in terms of morality. You know, I, I, there's a hundred rules I should keep. I kept 82 last week. I'll keep 84 this week. So I'll be more holy this week than I was last week. That's how we think of it, which actually isn't biblical. Certainly, if you're holy, you will act and behave the right way. But holiness is far beyond that. It has an idea of commitment. This is why in the Old Testament, you can find that there's holy like uh, furniture, there's holy pots there's holy chairs and there's holy you know rugs why are these inanimate objects holy like are they keeping a moral code no those items are holy because they are 100 percent, completely dedicated to the service of the lord and the worship of the lord those items are holy because everything about them is committed to god And the idea of surrender, the idea of committing, the the idea of putting all of your weight on, the idea of being all in is the idea of holiness, is the idea of all of me, not just what I have, but what I do. All of me is on the line. All of me is committed. All of me is surrendered. And I am willing to do that. And what Mary is doing for sure in this moment is in, in no uncertain terms. She's saying, I'm going to put all of me or anything that you would ask of me, Jesus, on the line. I'm not conditioned by uh, an ask too big. I'm not conditioned by something being too low or beneath me. My goal and my agenda doesn't it doesn't lead the way here. I told you this before, but I'll tell you again because I'm young and have limited material. Give me ten more years, and I'll have more material. If I came to your door and knocked on it, and you said, "Oh, hey, how you doing? You come in, Mark. Stay out, lichens." I would look at you confused. Because I would say, I'm Mark Lycans. That's me. Like Mark can't stay in and Likens stay out. It's all or nothing. And when you come to Jesus, what Mary is doing here isn't just like this next level Christianity that, you know, 10% of people should be there. This is Christianity 101. When you come to Jesus and you invite him into your life, you can't say come in Jesus, but stay out Lord. It's one or the other. You don't get to divide him down the middle and say, you know what? I like Jesus' Savior, but Lord, who's in control, and he gets to call the shots, and he, he has his own agenda, and he has his own plan, and he, he gets to say what happens, that that part, you know, that stays out, but the Jesus' Savior will come in. No, he's, it's all one, Jesus Christ the Lord. He comes in all or nothing. And Mary gets this. And then at a time when they're about to kill her brother, they're about to kill Jesus, she's not backpedaling. She's saying, I'm moving forward, I'm committing all that I have, all that that I do. There's nothing too big, Jesus, but then it goes on to say this, that there's relational commitment. And without the relational commitment, the first two really fall flat. And you find this in that she let down her hair. She gives the spikenard, she washes his feet, but she does it with her hair. In this day and age, to let down your hair in public, which are not necessarily in public, but it's public enough. It's a big festival. It's a big banquet. It's a, it's a big dinner in honor of Jesus. Lots of people are coming. To let down your hair in this venue really was scandalous. And letting down your hair meant then kind of what it means now. If I said, Hey, you know, just, just let just let down your hair with me you would know what i was saying you were saying you know what there's enough relationship there's enough intimacy we're close enough that you should be a bit more vulnerable you should be a bit more open you should lean into the relationship a little bit more you don't have to be all buttoned up you don't have to you know give me your best presentation you can let your hair down you can take your makeup off you can be real with me right so when mary in this instance let her hair down it's a way then and now of showing openness of showing intimacy of showing love of showing something that typically you would only show at home with your, with your private family members. Typically, you would only do it with those that are closest to you and your immediate family. But here she says, not just I give up my stuff, not just I give up my things and, and even my, my will, but Jesus, I'm going to give you my heart. Jesus, I'm going to... There's, the there's the heater, air conditioner. Jesus, I'm going to give you all that I have, all that I am. I'm not just going to serve. I'm not just going to, to, you know, write you a check and then be done with it because you can do that without your heart. Anyone ever been there? Where you're serving Jesus out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of obligation, because after all, Pastor Mark told me I should. I mean, I can't be like, come in Jesus, stay out, Lord. So, I mean, that makes sense. So I have to do this and, and you know, I should give and, you know, I, I should make a mission's commitment. I should do this and I should do that. But you do it almost begrudgingly You do it without your heart in it. You do it without a sense of love. You do it just because it's your duty. And I'm not telling you not to do something just because it's your duty. I'm saying you should move beyond that and move to where Mary is, that there is a relationship here very clearly. There's love here, there's closeness here. She is able to approach her Savior with confidence she's religion can't give you this if you just have religion you'll never get to this place if you just have religion you can give a lot if you just have religion you can serve a lot but if you just have religion you'll never approach jesus with confidence it'll always be did i serve enough did i do enough am i good enough did i merit enough You'll never get the sense of what, of what the author of Hebrews tells us, that we can enter boldly before the throne of grace, that, that we can find help for a time of need. Why? Because we have a high priest, Jesus, who he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's no, He knows what it's like to be us, that you can have a sense of relationship and intimacy and confidence and that you can go to him not wondering, not not worried about, am I close enough? Is is Have I done enough? But you can actually move towards him. Mary does this and she does this perfectly really And it's almost as if mary is saying when she takes a spikenard in her alabaster box and she breaks it open take my silver and my gold not a mite would i withhold it's almost as if she's saying when she gets to the feet of jesus and begins to wash them take my will make it thine it shall be no longer mine it's almost as if when she lets her hair down that she says take my love lord i pour at thy feet its treasure store that she is saying, I'm, I'm committed to you. I'm, I'm all in. There's no part of me that I'm leaving out of this. Now, I'll be quick with this, but there's, this is a theme throughout a lot of Jesus' teaching. You would find him very commonly saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. That, that a man, when, when he has found, he hideth the treasure and then for the joy thereof he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field Why? Because I realize what I have, I realize what is so valuable that I will gladly sell all. I will gladly get rid of all. I will gladly liquidate. I will gladly go all in because what I'm getting here is so much grander and so much more beautiful and so much richer and so much more pleasant for me to have than than to hold on to my will or to hold on to my possessions or to hold on to my own heart and to to guard this from Jesus that if I will let this all go, I can do this with joy. I can with joy let it all go because I know that I'm safe in him and there's confidence there. Now, I have to ask you, and I think you should ask the text, okay, where does that sort of commitment come from? Most Christians I know would say, Pastor, man, thanks. Mary was committed. You know, I I learned a couple cultural things that I didn't really know before. Man, the, the story, it kind of pops off the page a little bit more. That's awesome. She was really committed. I should be really committed. But how do I get there? Most Christians I know want to be there, legitimately want to be there. But say, I got a million things going on. I, I got the pressure of life. I got the pace of life. I got my I got my kids. I got my parents' health and trying to help them deal with that. Or I got my own health problems. Or I got I got all this. You know, I, I want to be there, and I come to church and I leave. You know, all jazzed up and yeah, let's do that. But how do I get there? Is that just come to church? You know, more often and then I'll get there. Is that just read my Bible more often? Is that pray for five minutes a day? Like, what's the formula? And I I don't think there's a formula, but I do think the answer is in the text. Verses 7 and 8 say this, after Judas says, sell it, give it to the poor, aka, you know, me too. Jesus says this, leave her alone. Everyone's mad, worked up. What is she doing? This is excessive. Where's your sense of proportion? Leave her alone. Let her alone. Against the day of my bearing has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Let me cover verse 8 first. Because that verse distracts us from verse seven. You read that little snippet of Jesus, and and if you're not careful, you think that Jesus is saying the poor don't matter, and that distracts your mind, and you completely miss what he said in verse seven. I've heard a lot of, of talk on verse eight, very little on verse seven. Jesus is not saying that the poor are, you know, trivial. He's not saying what to do or not do with the poor, frankly but he's definitely not saying they're trivial. When he contrasts himself to the poor, he is assuming that there is inherent worth in the poor and that Judas was not misfounded when Judas said that we should give to the poor, right? It's like this. If I, if I told my wife, baby, I love you so much, I love you more than Cruz's Lego set. Or I told my wife, baby, I love you so much, I love you more than life itself. Which set of words mean more? Legos or life itself? Thanks, Dale. Life itself, right? <laughs> Why? Because Legos are cheap, they're a couple bucks. Life is inherently valuable, right? So to say that my love is above and beyond life means that that is, that is special, that is amazing because life is inherently valuable. So when Jesus contrasts himself to the poor and he says that you have them, but this is good to give to me, he's not saying, oh, fiddlesticks on the poor, they're nothing, but give it all to me. What he's saying is that there is a lot of value there and there is an importance on prioritizing that, but I am I am unique and I am over even above that and that's an amazing statement. Okay, so get that straight first. But what's really important in this text is verse 7. That Jesus says, Leave her alone against the day of my burying. Hath she kept this? What does that mean? Because that's the key to the whole passage, really. Jesus is saying, more or less, she knows I'm going to be buried. Now, how exactly Mary knew this, I don't know. Maybe she intuits this because she's just perceptive and she just connects dots. Maybe she's heard the rumors that people went to the Pharisees and that there's a death warrant out on Jesus and that people went to the Pharisees and now there's a death warrant out on Lazarus and she perceives and just uh, the dominoes are falling that way. They're probably going to kill Jesus. You know, he's at my house. Maybe Jesus told her I'm, I'm going up to Jerusalem. You know, but somehow she knows that Jesus is going to be sacrificed. Chapter 11 ends that way. That this this is going to be the end and she, this is now dawning on her. This is now uh, connecting with her in some way deep down that she realizes he interrupted this funeral we had for my brother, but he is ushering in his own funeral. That this this is the beginning of the end. I don't know if she knows that he'll die on a cross. I don't know if she knows exactly how many days. I don't know what all she knows, but I think the text is pretty clear that she somehow knows that Jesus is about to die and Jesus is about to be buried. And from that heart, from that heart, knowing that a sacrifice was coming on her behalf, knowing that Jesus was going to lay down his life, knowing that his burial was soon approaching, from that heart, she breaks it open, pours it out, washes his feet, lets down her hair from that heart. And, from, and when you understand that, it makes a little bit more sense that Mary is more or less seeing the sacrifice of Jesus and somehow knowing what is going to happen, and it elicits a natural commitment from her. What, what am I saying? What I'm saying is, if you want to be Mary-esque, if you want to be committed, if you want to put your weight forward, if you want to be all in, how do you get there? Is it keeping 84 rules instead of 82? Is it willpower? I would say no. I would say the way you get there is the way Mary got there. It is a spiritual understanding and perceiving over and over and over again the sacrifice of Jesus and letting your heart be melted by that. It's the gospel. It is allowing this to connect with you and it's her seeing the sacrifice her being awakened by his love that all of a sudden this commitment and this extravagant love blossoms out of her heart because she wants to give back to her savior who is in fact going to be sacrificed for her and i don't know any other way to truly authentically get to where mary's at other than that i don't know any other way then to remind yourself over and over and over and over again and preach to your own heart the truth of the gospel over and over and over again, that he loves me, he died for me, he sacrificed himself for me, he was buried for me, he rose for me. And to allow that, just to, just to talk that through over and over and allow that to connect with yourself and allow that to move you to commitment. Because any other way, frankly, is going to be somewhat plastic. He initiates the love. He's the miraculous one. He's the Savior, and so I'll give all. I don't know if Mary would have written these words if she lived later on in history, but maybe she would have written the words that Kathy Burton wrote when she wrote, when I survey. Kathy wrote these words, were the whole realm of nature mine? If I possessed it all, the whole world, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I think that's where she's at. I think that she has been melted and awakened by the love of Jesus and the sacrifice that He is giving to her, that it organically produces a commitment and in all inness that we too should model. And I hope that if you're not there this morning that you can get there. Because as we're saying, when they'll come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. There's nothing between you and God other than what you have. If you'll turn and run to him, he'll accept you and you can be there. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?